0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So tonight we're here to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. First of all, we have Elizabeth Evatt AC, who is not only an eminent Australian lawyer and jurist, but was also the first Australian to be elected to the United Nations Human Rights Committee, and she will later introduce Gillian. Our keynote, keynote speaker is Emeritus Professor Gillian Triggs, who was the Australian Human Rights Commissioner from 2012 to 2017, and who has many more qualifications and will be introduced more fully in just a moment. We also have the Honourable Tanya Plibersek, MP, who is the Member for Sydney and Deputy Leader of the Labor Party, who will be giving a vote of thanks after the keynote address. And uh, we will finally have another member of the the Evett Foundation Committee, who will be uh, saying thank you. So if you would join me in welcoming all of the incredible women who will be speaking tonight, I would much appreciate it. And also if you could welcome Elizabeth Evett AC to the stage.
1: Thank you. This event is to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the adoption by the General Assembly of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights on the 10th of December, 1948. I can remember that event. I was 15 at the time. In other circumstances, perhaps I wouldn't have been aware of that momentous event, and I certainly could not have foreseen that I would later spend years working in human rights. But the declaration touched me and our family, because my uncle Bert was at that time president of the General Assembly of the United Nations. The idea of human rights was close to his heart. Some years earlier, he had shown the family Norman Rockwell's posters of Roosevelt's Four Freedoms. He wanted those rights and freedoms, freedom of speech, of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want, to be part of the new and better world which surely must follow the horrors of war. I may have hazarded the view that the declaration was a good thing. My father was a little hesitant, It's all very well, he said, but you can't use it in court. He and Bert would dearly have loved to see legally enforceable human rights. Bert had already made a great contribution to setting up the new international order of the United Nations and to giving it an important role in regard to human rights. He went on in his role as foreign uh, minister to ensure that Australia was closely involved in the drafting of the declaration. The Australian efforts were directed not only to civil and political rights, which were quite well understood at that time, but to the relatively new areas of economic rights and social justice, including labor rights, the right to an adequate standard of living and social security. Burt had wanted legally enforceable rights, but that was a bridge too far. The Commission on Human Rights completed its task of drafting the declaration relatively quickly for a UN body. Eleanor Roosevelt, as chair of the, of the commission, managed the drafting process, keeping control of her disparate commission by inviting carefully chosen groups of members to tea with her. It's all been told the story by Mary Ann Glendon in her book about the Declaration. At the adoption ceremony in the General Assembly, which took place in Paris, Burt acknowledged, perhaps with some regret, that the declaration did not impose binding or enforceable rights. Still, he said, it is the first occasion on which the organized community of nations has made a declaration of human rights and fundamental freedoms. It has the authority of the body of opinion of the United Nations as a whole. He and others had worked hard to ensure that there were no negative votes, though eight states had abstained. Predictably, the six Soviet bloc countries, South Africa and Saudi Arabia. But when voted on individually during the process, 23 of the 30 articles of the declaration had been accepted by all members of the UN without dissent. That's important. Looking back, it's nothing less than miraculous that in a world which was rapidly descending into the tensions of the Cold War, there should have been a consensus, even if an uneasy one, on a statement of universal human rights. Burt saw the declaration as the first step in an evolutionary process, and in this he was right. Over the years that followed, the United Nations has created many human rights covenants and conventions. These flow from the principles of the declaration, but they go further by creating legally binding obligations for the states which sign on to them. Burt didn't live to see Australia become a party to any of those instruments. But I have worked for a number of years as a member of the independent monitoring body for two of the instruments, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women and the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The monitoring bodies for those instruments strive to persuade states to fulfill the legal obligations which they have freely undertaken. They have to use their powers of persuasion because although the obligations are legally binding in international law, there are no enforceability mechanisms. Although there is now an international criminal court and several regional human rights courts, there's no international UN-sponsored international human rights court. This leaves an important gap in the international enforceability of human rights Too many states, including our own, have failed to live up to their undertakings. In December 1988, at the 40th anniversary of the Universal Declaration, I was invited to present Australia's statement to the General Assembly of the United Nations. This statement revived the proposal emanating from BERT, which Australia had made back in the 1940s when the declaration was being drafted for the UN to set up an international court of human rights. This is an idea still waiting its time, and it, it won't go away. When you read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you will see that it describes a utopian world, a world where everyone has their basic needs for food, clothing and shelter satisfied, where everyone has access to education, employment, cultural life, social security and health care, where everyone has the right to equal treatment without discrimination, where no one is subjected to oppressive government, to arbitrary arrest or to torture, where everyone is free to participate in or to criticize government and to follow his or her own religion. And it is not inappropriate to mention in today's climate that it provides everyone to have the right to a nationality and to seek and enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. Bert, in speaking of the Declaration, emphasised two significant points. First, he stressed the universality of these rights for men, women and children all over the world. Second, he emphasised that these rights also bring with them duties. He echoed the preamble in its call to every individual and every organ of society to strive to secure the universal and effective recognition and observance of the rights. That is the duty of all of us, if we are to bring about a social and international order in which the rights and freedoms set forth in the declaration can be fully realized. Now, the moment that we've been waiting for today, my pleasant duty to introduce to you Gillian Triggs. She is now the Vice-Chancellor's Fellow of the University of Melbourne. She was President of the Australian Human Rights Commission from 2012 to 2017. She's had a career in international law, in both in academia and in practice. She was a professor at the University of Melbourne Law School, director of the British Institute of International and Comparative Law, and dean of the Sydney University Law School. She's published on a range of international law issues. I'll always remember and admire her courage when she was subjected to personal attacks for doing no more than fulfilling her legal mandate as president of the Human Rights Commission by advising government that there were laws, policies, and practices which fell short of our human rights commitments, especially... (laughs) Especially in regard to asylum seekers, the government failed to silence her because the independence of the Human Rights Commission enables and requires it to continue to speak truth truth to government. And because Gillian remained unbending, we remain grateful to her for her considerable contribution to human rights and her steadfastness. Gillian, please
2: Well, good evening, everyone. It's a huge privilege for me to be here uh, to speak um, as part of the Evett uh, Foundation celebration of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights 70 years on. And thank you, Elizabeth. It's always a privilege to be with you and to hear you speak with such clarity. Uh, You've really been the greatest leader in Australia and I too of course acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and certainly when I was Dean of the Faculty of Law just across the road it was always a delight for me to see from the windows of that glittering glass palace of a law school that we moved to uh, that uh, on the land just in front of us was of course a meeting ground for the Gadigal people and I always thought that was a a rather relevant uh, factor in thinking about the role of the law school. Well, um, I was uh, especially pleased to be part of this exercise because it's also not only a a, a speech from me, but uh, a play, uh, Eleanor and Alice, that I understand has been enormously successful. But it does demonstrate a very important point and something I learned as president of the Human Rights Commission, and that is that the arts, comedy, poetry, literature... Uh, sculpture, any aspect of the arts is enormously important in helping to move hearts and minds about human rights. One can produce all the research and all the reports to Parliament but what will actually move people will very often be something produced by the artistic community. Well, the Universal Declaration was seen by Eleanor Roosevelt as the international Magna Carta of all mankind. And our own um, Australia's former High Court, Justice Mary Gordon, said it was arguably the most important document ever reduced to writing, whether on paper, papyrus, vellum, or tablets of stone. And I think she was right. But tonight I would like to set a rather different tone by explaining my concerns that Australia has become isolated and exceptional in its failure to protect the human rights of some of the most vulnerable in our community. Sadly, we've let down the Evatt vision and his courage. He would have been astonished to learn that 70 years later, Australia has yet to implement the Universal Declaration in our National Laws. Australia is no longer an international leader in upholding human rights at home or abroad. Our reputation as a good international citizen is undeniably tarnished as an advocate and exemplar for the protection of fundamental freedoms and for the grand vision of the Universal Declaration. But can can I begin, perhaps, by observing that you can never over-prepare for any public speech? Just recently, I gave a speech at the Maitland City Library of New South Wales on human rights and Australia's protection uh, of those rights. And as is my wont, I began by saying how enormously important Dr. Herbert Veer Evert had been in promoting the idea of the international rule of law uh, uh, and social justice, but my heart sank as someone in the audience immediately raised their hand to tell me that Doc Evatt had been born in Maitland and I didn't need to tell them about his brilliance (laughs) and commitment to civil liberties. Well, I suspect that many of you here tonight uh, will also know more about him than I do, but I'm nonetheless confident in saying that Doc Evatt was a vitally influential participant as Foreign Minister in the negotiations for the United Nations Charter in ensuring that Australia became a founding member of this organization in 1945. In Ewart's view, the former League under the Covenant had failed to prevent conflict, and he saw the drafting of the Charter as an opportunity this time that uh, post-the Second World War uh, would be founded on social welfare, economic justice, and a province, to use his words, a province for law and order. The ideal that the rule of law and the protection of human rights can moderate and even avoid international aggression and conflict has inspired my career as an international lawyer. Doc Evert's powerful, though not always welcome leadership as head of Australia's um, uh, delegation to the talks in San Francisco on the draft charter led to the invitation three years later by Eleanor Roosevelt uh, to Australia to join her as one of the nations drafting the declaration. And William Hodgson represented Australia during those negotiations with the support of Doc Evert. Um, But as Elizabeth has pointed out, the truly exceptional and not always well-known fact is that Dr. Everett was elected president of the General Assembly at its third session in September 1948. And according to his wife, Mary Alice, this was the achievement he most valued as a voice on the world stage for the international rule of law. Under his presidency, the declaration was passed by 48 states without a negative vote. Can you imagine this happening today? either that Australia will be elected as president of the General Assembly or that the Human Rights Declaration would achieve such a broad consensus in a world of 193 nations. Well, Everett's commitment to the international rule of law was, of course, reflected in his own commitment to civil rights in Australia. He appeared in the High Court to argue against the constitutional validity of the Communist Party Dissolution Act of 1950, that would have, b- have banned the party in Australia. The High Court decided that the Menzies government did not have the power to ban a political party in peacetime, a decision that is probably one of the most important ones ever made by the High Court to protect fundamental civil rights. In a 66 to 1 majority, the act was found to be unconstitutional because it attempted to oust the independence of the courts to legal review of government decisions and threaten judicial independence. Now I mention this case not only because obviously there's a connection with, with, uh, with, um, with, with, with Doc Ebert's commitment to basic rights, but it is now nearly 70 years later that we can contrast the position today where federal parliament increasingly passes laws that ask the jurisdiction of the courts with mandatory sentencing laws, where ministers are granted unprecedented discretionary powers that are neither compelable by the courts nor for practical purposes reviewable by them, when some politicians denigrate judges and their decisions in the media, and when parliament has given the Minister for Home Affairs a discretionary power to overturn certain decisions of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal the Communist Party case continues to provide a powerful judicial check against the abuse or overreach of executive power in Canberra. Wotok well, Evert has been described variously by biographers as a champion of civil liberties, a dangerous radical, a maligned hero, an exceptionally talented, contentious, polarizing, irreverent, insistent, and boisterous man. I do share some of those adjectives, I think. <laughs> Dr. Evert's legacy 70 years after the Declaration remains vital today in a world facing war, poverty, injustice, and inequality. I admire him deeply as a law student and today uh, because he followed his lodestar of social justice, individual, individual liberty, and the rule of law. But returning to the Universal Declaration, it was the first time in legal history that it linked the avoidance of conflict and the use of force to the idea of human rights, and that they should be protected by the rule of law. The Declaration lists 30 articles to protect human rights, emphasizing the in- inalienable dignity and, in- and rights of all members, universally all members of the human rights family, as the foundation, this linkage with freedom, justice, and peace. It sets out, Principles of non-discrimination and equality before the law, the rights to life, liberty and security of the person, the right to effective judicial remedies and to fair criminal trials. It prohibits slavery and arbitrary arrest, detention or exile. And as Elizabeth has pointed out, that crucial uh, Article 14, everyone has the right to seek and enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. And I can link that of course, to this point, that this, is this problem that he so readily understood, and indeed those drafting the charter and the declaration after the Second World War understood that if you breach human rights, there's a very good chance you will lead to conflict and even war in the international environment. And a good example of that, of course, is the plight of the Rohingya people. They've been denied the right, the simple right to nationality in Myanmar for decades. It's no surprise. That we now have one of the worst uh, human rights abuses in our region, where the United Nations says or reports that something like 800,000 Rohingya have fled uh, from Myanmar uh, across the border to Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries in the world, where they are receiving uh, some measure of, uh, of, uh, of protection against the abuses that they have suffered at the hands of uh, many within the, within the Myanmar government. But... Uh, Also, something that was really exciting, and, and we've perhaps forgotten it, is that the declaration was revolutionary in including social and economic rights, the standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of the family, including food, housing, and social services. Well, the Declaration did set out voluntary rather than legal principles. And I must admit, I was very, of course, uh, interested in the point that it was well recognized, as as Elizabeth has said, well, very early on by Dr. Evert. It's all very good, but I can't use it in court. That was my problem. In a sentence, that was my problem as president of the Australian Human Rights Commission. I couldn't go to the government and I couldn't go through our lawyers to the courts to enforce those fundamental provisions. And that is something I would like to talk to you about tonight. The Declaration was nonetheless the founding inspiration for the suite of binding treaty obligations, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Convention Against Torture, the Convention on the uh, Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, the Race Discrimination Act, and many others. I do agree with other uh, legal scholars that the Declaration now reflects customary law and is binding on all countries. The key point, however, is not that technical international legal point. The key point is that the Declaration was the scaffolding for contemporary human rights law throughout the world. Indeed, I often found in my work at the Australian Human Rights Commission that it was a lot clearer for me to refer to the relatively simple language of the universal declaration rather than the more technical treaties. No one would listen to me if I referred to Article 9 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights uh, that, that uh, prohibits the arbitrary detention without charge or trial. Um, which, of course, was fundamental to our work on the executive administrative detention of asylum seekers and now increasingly of those who've lost visa rights or lost citizenship. It's true, however, to say that since those heady days of drafting the Charter and Universal Declaration, Australia has been a supporter and a contributor to human rights treaty negotiations and has ratified almost all the major human rights instruments. For many decades, we've we've had a deserved re- reputation as a good international citizen. It's also true that for the most part, most people, most of the time in Australia, have had their human rights respected in this country. But that is until that remarkable year of 2001, the year of the children overboard misstatement by the Howard government, subsequently found by the Senate uh, to have no evidence whatever to support it The same year, the Tampa rescue of asylum seekers, bringing them uh, from the prospect of drowning to Christmas Island, and a few weeks later, after the Justice North decisions in the Federal Court, the terrorist attacks on the Pentagon and the Twin Towers. Since that time, I suggest, respective governments and opposition parties have employed the language of fear to conflate the right of vulnerable people to seek asylum with terrorism and rising Islamophobia, and to pass laws that breach our human rights in innumerable ways with counter-terrorism laws that are unprecedented outside wartime and which appear to be disproportionate. The passing of the de-encryption laws a few days ago has proved to be part of the rush, quite typical, before Christmas, of counter-terrorism laws. As an ordinary citizen with no access to information from security forces, I cannot say whether these laws meet legal standards and whether they meet that standard both in international law and Australian law. Is the measure, the legislation, necessary and proportionate to meet a legitimate aim? I can't answer that question, but I am concerned that laws so obviously interfering with the rights and many rights of all Australians should be passed for political or opportunistic reasons without evidence, but appear to be based on fear. And to cover, and that all covering phrase, these are dangerous times. When our former Prime Minister, Mr. Turnbull, was asked about national security laws and the need for yet more counter-terrorism laws, he didn't produce any evidence. He didn't engage in analysis or discussion. He simply said, these are dangerous times. I find it more than curious that Dangerous Times do not seem to include the fact that since January this year, 75 women and 20 children have been killed in domestic violence, while very few have tragically died as a result of a terrorist act in Australia. If, as the government argues, the strong laws and the billions in funding have indeed prevented terrorist attacks, perhaps we could apply the same logic to support women and their families to reduce this appalling rate of deaths as a consequence of domestic violence. Well, it is uh, sadly true that over the last 10, 15 years, Australia has regressed in its commitment to human rights and has been repeatedly condemned by responsible treaty bodies within the United Nations system. Just recently, The Human Rights Committee released its recommendations from its review of Australia's compliance with key provisions of the International Covenant uh, on civil and political rights. We were criticized for failures in key areas, the treatment of refugees, indigenous rights, and the inadequate protection of human rights, in in particular the lack of a National Human Rights Act. Australia was excoriated for its chronic non-compliance of the Committee's recommendations over many years drawing particular condemnation over the mandatory detention of children and the same-sex marriage survey. The committee said it was unacceptable for Australia to routinely reject the committee's views, to self-judge international human rights treaties, telling Australia it could not pick and choose which laws it sought to follow and which laws it wanted to uphold. It's one of those great paradoxes of, of history that the recently appointed High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, Uh, should uh, have recently strongly criticized Australia's human rights record. But the interesting thing is that she came to Australia after the Pinochet years in Chile and received refugee status with her family and lived in Australia for a number of years before she returned to Chile and to the international uh, legal environment. She is now, as I said, the human rights commissioner, uh, and it's with some, of course, uh, poignancy and sadness that she is now saying that um, Australia uh, should, uh, uh, that its current offshore processing centres are an affront to the protection of human rights. She's also drawn attention to the global compact drafted through negotiations in the United Nations to deal with the mass movement of 65 million displaced persons and refugees around the world. She's particularly drawn attention to the fact that Australia uh, will not join that global compact. Um, I've had a little bit of personal experience with this, with this world, because as president of the Human Rights Commission, I had the opportunity to make a, present, a presentation to the Human Rights Council uh, for uh, two minutes, was the amount of time I was given. Uh, you can say a lot in two minutes, and uh, in this extraordinary um, central uh, hall of the, uh, in Geneva, uh, each country, a member of the Human Rights Council, about 44 states, Uh, got about a minute and and six seconds, because it depends on how many there are, uh, would get up, courteously respect Australia's human rights record in the past, and then use their last few seconds to strongly condemn Australia for our uh, laws on Indigenous Australians, incarceration rates, domestic violence, but most particularly asylum seeker, detention policies, and offshore uh, detention. It was shocking that so many of our allies, these were not the usual suspect, but our traditional allies prepared to stand up and question our human rights policies. It was very disappointing for me to see that, but I did have the opportunity myself to speak to the subject. I think I'm told afterwards I spoke for longer than two minutes, but the chair kindly gave me a little bit of extra time to make my point. But what was particularly concerning was that after these After country, after country, after country stood up to express its concerns about Australia's failure to comply with human rights, the Australian government's response was that with regard to more than half of them, we already comply with international human rights law. In other words, there was no argument, no analysis, no description of how we got there, simply a self-serving statement that we comply with our laws. Well, there are countless examples of Australia's failure to protect human rights, and I'll just mention a very few of them. Um, Overarching, my concern grew out of my time as president of the Human Rights Commission, and that is the unprecedented expansion of executive and discretionary powers. But you can also... Uh, drill down to more precise anti-protest laws, particularly with regard to environmental concerns, data protection and the invasion of privacy, Um, the failure to give effect to the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples to which Australia has signed up, a failure to close the gap in health, especially in remote Aboriginal communities, suffering inadequate housing and failure to get proper access to medical care, punitive laws that continue to see Aboriginal people locked up Um, And over 20 years after the Royal Commission inquiry into Aboriginal deaths in custody, ever greater numbers held uh, of Indigenous peoples in our jails, um, many of them still, uh, or some of them rather, still dying in those jails. Um, And you'll recall the shocking Don Dale uh, uh, evidence on the CCTV footage produced by Four Corners. Um, 100% of young people In juvenile detention in the Northern Territory are indigenous and across the country 55% are indigenous. Um, Very interesting, Uh, that was an interesting uh, uh, situation for, for us in the Commission because we and I as president had reported on the use of the steel restraints and spit hoods as being in gross breach of our international legal obligations. But that report to Parliament sank without trace. Now, I'm not here to complain about that. But what I am here to say is how important it is to bring the media with you and the arts, as we've seen in the play yesterday, uh, with you to make the point about human rights breaches It was only when the Australian public saw the CCTV footage and that iconic photograph of Dylan in the steel restraints that we had an immediate response uh, from the government and from Mr. Turnbull setting up the Royal Commission. But what a tragedy that that commission reported. The recommendations were broadly accepted, uh, but one of them was to close Dondale. And what was it, two weeks ago, we see Dondale in yet again uh, inflamed, Uh, and and youths there um, uh, rebelling uh, and destroying property, uh, but also subject to uh, continued restraint. Uh, So it's very, very hard indeed uh, to move laws and policies, uh, even though you can have uh, iconic photographs uh, and CCTV footage demonstrating to the Australian public just how dreadful these conditions are. Um, And of course, it was a, a matter of enormous disappointment to me that the Uluru Statement from the Heart, a simple request for consultation by Indigenous Australians on matters that concern them, a voice to Parliament, a considered statement that took nearly a year to produce, and that the commission played a small role through Mick Gooder, the uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander commissioner, um, to uh, encourage and support those consultations. So tragic uh, that we were unable to uh, speak favourably about that, about that Uluru statement. But we also have restrictions on freedom of speech, attacks on civil society, reduced funding for community legal centres, and a failure to respond adequately to social problems of homelessness... Most of particular concern to me, as a a 60s law student in a time of great hope and optimism for women, we've seen a regressive position of women in Australia with the World Economic Forum's index uh, uh, documenting that Australia has moved in recent years from 15th on that global index to 46th and something like 40, uh, sorry, we stand for political engagement and empowerment of Australian women at 61st in the world. And, and there are other uh, equally puzzling uh, um, rankings for Australia in relation to women. With the ranking that you won't be at all surprised to know about, we are number one in the world for educational attainment. And that is the surprise for me, because in the 60s when I did my law degree, I really believed that access to education, which I had with no university fees, that access to education would unlock the key for women and give us that political and economic empowerment that we must have. Uh, You'll all remember um, that extraordinary book, um, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Women must have both education and economic and political empowerment, but that still has yet to come. There are many other examples, but my key question for this evening is how did it come to this? Why is Australia so isolated from its Western legal roots and so exceptional in its failure to protect common law freedoms and rights? And let me explain as briefly as I can. Firstly, we're the only Western democracy and the only common law country in the world that does not have some form of either constitutionally entrenched or legislated charter or Bill of Rights. The countries that we usually like to be compared with, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, New Zealand, and much of Europe, have either a legislated or constitutionally entrenched charter that sets a cultural benchmark for the community and tools for the courts to provide a check on the abuse of executive power by government. In addition to that unique position, Parliament has failed to implement the major human rights treaties to which Australia is a party. So, in acknowledging that we have been a leader in negotiating, signing, and ratifying these treaties, built upon the leadership uh, of Dr. H.V. Evatt, we have not translated those international treaties into domestic law. So that the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Economic, Social and Rights, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Refugee Convention, are not part directly of Australian law. So that we are in the rather invidious position of having international legal obligations under our treaties, but unable, as Doc Everett readily recognised in 1948, unable to appeal to those treaty obligations in our direct relationships with the courts or with government. Australia's protection of human rights is best understood as a patchwork of laws, leaving wide gaps in freedoms for some of the most vulnerable in the community. Some laws provide comprehensive protection against discrimination on the grounds of race, sex, disability and age, while other rights, such as freedom of speech, association and privacy, are only partially protected. It's welcome news, for example, that a few days ago Australia passed the Modern Slavery Act creating obligations for business to report slavery within their supply chains. Australia's also recently ratified the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture, one of the most important reforms, I believe, for the future of our prisons, our detention centres, and even potentially aged care facilities. But as I said, at the same time, we have rejected the United States Global Compact on Migration. Well, you might say, what about the Constitution? The Constitution protects the independence of the courts, the rights of citizens to judicial review of unlawful government acts, along with freedom of religious expression. But it protects very, very few other common law rights. There's no provision, for example, that prohibits arbitrary detention without trial, as as is required by the Universal Declaration. But a prohibition that doesn't reflect, if you want, the left-wing General Assembly vote. It reflects a prohibition as old as the Magna Carta, that along with your feudal dues to your the Lord of the Manor and with the breadth of a piece of cloth or the content of a piece of wine, uh, a glass of wine is that extraordinary provision. No man may be detained arbitrarily without charge or trial by his peers. Well, if the Constitution doesn't protect these rights, what about the High Court? Well, the High Court has, on occasion, in past decades, implied certain rights, including the right to political communication, and again, by implication, the right to vote. Courts are quick to repeat the mantra that Parliament is subject to the rule of law, and that laws are to be interpreted according to the principle of legality. That is, that the common law uh, can be ousted only by the clear and unambiguous words of Parliament. The extraordinary phenomenon, however, is that all too often the techniques of statutory interpretation have not been employed by the courts to overcome the words of Parliament. For the apparently convincing reason that Parliament represents the sovereignty of the people, it passes the laws, and the courts are bound to uphold them. I suggest we examine the reasoning more closely. What if Parliament and the government of the day and the opposition are in lockstep over policies that breach a fundamental prohibition on arbitrary detention, or breach rights to privacy, or freedom of association, or freedom of speech, or the right to protest? I believe that the courts should have the tools to step in and insist that laws are consistent with that overriding prohibition. In short, even Parliament is subject to the rule of law, just as bad King John in 1215 was also held by his feudal barons to be subject to the rule of law. Of course, we all know that King John tore up the Magna Carta within a couple of weeks um, and uh, and, uh, really never uh, uh, agreed to those terms, but the symbolic value is enormous in the development of the common law. So human rights protection in Australia has been left largely to the Joint Parliamentary Committee on Human Rights, the so-called Scrutiny Committee, that has sadly proved to be a toothless tiger. When this legislation was first passed, I was enormously excited, and I rather prematurely wrote um, a journal article. I was, uh, I think, dean of the Sydney Law School at that time, called um, Australia and Human Rights Coming in from the Cold. I thought this was a rather clever title. Um, But within a year or so, it was becoming pretty clear to me that we hadn't quite come in from the cold, uh, and that sadly, that committee uh, typically splits down party lines and is largely ignored during parliamentary debates on proposed laws. Then we come to the Australian Human Rights Commission. It has a wide mandate and powers. It's been in existence for 30 years. It can investigate and conciliate complaints the breaches of anti-discrimination laws, and the human rights obligations in the Convention for the Rights of Children and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, along with some ILO uh, provisions. But now you'll see the flaw in the powers of the Commission. In attempting to hold the government to account for compliance with these international treaty obligations, those treaties are not directly part of Australian law. So if I was to appeal to the minister or to appeal through our lawyers to the courts, I would get the same answer. That's an interesting legal argument, Gillian, but those treaties are not directly binding on Australia. And that is why there is almost inevitably going to be a collision between the commission, and in my case the president, and the government of the day. And you might recall that the Bringing Them Home report by uh, Sir Ronald Wilson, a former High Court judge and president of the Human Rights Commission, now known as the Stolen Generation report, the most referenced report ever from the Commission, he too attracted very considerable opprobrium for concluding uh, that the Stolen Generation um, constituted a form of genocide. A quite courageous and strong view of a man known to be a conservative and black letter lawyer. Compounding the legal problems, I believe, of the Commission, for example, in our Forgotten Children's Report, but many others, including the conditions in Dondale and elsewhere for Indigenous children, has been the mounting evidence of interference in the independence of the Commission, along with that of other institutions that are crucial to our working democracy, most notably, of course, recently, the ABC. So in summary, we have no federal charter of rights. Most human rights treaties have not been transformed into domestic law. The Constitution fails adequately to protect many fundamental freedoms. And sadly, our courts, especially a very conservative high court, has failed to challenge Parliament's laws that egregiously breach our common law freedoms and rights. Well, what is to be done about this? Firstly, we must always come back to education, the importance of education in our schools and our universities. Um, It's an extraordinary fact that when um, a survey was conducted some, a few years ago, by the Electoral Commission, the question was asked of Australians, do we have a constitution? 48% of Australians sa- said no. The follow-up question was, do we have a Bill of Rights? And 62% of Australians said yes. <laughs> Not long after, after um, looking at those, uh, that survey result, I happened to see, and apologies to Queenslanders, I happened to see a news item in Queensland of a man who had uh, killed, his partner, uh, a woman, Uh, a story, of course, we see far too often. And as the police arrived and the cufflinks circled around his wrists, he asked the police officer, I want to take the Fifth Amendment. (laughs) The tragedy is but we know so little about our Constitution, about what used to be called civics, but the sheer responsibilities of a citizen. We know so little about it, but we know more about our rights through American television programs than we do about our own educational system. And I think until we pull back citizenship to each of us and each of us accepting responsibility for the way our democracy works, it's going to be very difficult to overcome the more technical legal problems I've taken up your time speaking about. Um, I also am now very sure that leadership at all levels of our society, but most particularly political leadership, is absolutely crucial. If we do not have leadership that respects individual dignity and the rule of law, then that failure to respect and to diminish those rights simply moves through the community and licenses too many people. And the calls by um, many uh, in the uh, coalition government for the abolition of the Australian Human Rights Commission, for example, um, is very, very worrying indeed. Because what it does is to suggest that somehow human rights are, are something that Australia can ignore uh, and that we no longer are part of that global movement, leading, of course, to the isolation legally that I'm so concerned about. Um, but above all, I, as a lawyer, have landed uh, on the, the, the view now that we need an Australian Charter of Rights to protect our human rights at the international level. I believe it would help to give the judges the tools to challenge government legislation and measures and practices. Um, it will provide a safety net and to ensure that government complies with the rules that it's promised to comply with under international law. Perhaps more importantly, it could help to build a culture of language about human rights to respect the values that we all care about. There are different models. And may I be very clear in saying I am not promoting, at the moment, a, an entrenched, Charter of Rights into our Constitution. Certainly, the United States, South Africa, and Canada have such an entrenched charter. And many years ago, I would have supported an entrenched Bill of Rights in Australia. But I um, have become much more pragmatic. We can't constitutionally, through referenda, get the race power out of our Constitution. We cannot find the constitutional will politically to change the Constitution, or add to the Constitution, to recognize our indigenous peoples. And I think in those circumstances, the chance of of getting a fully uh, developed Bill of Rights into our Constitution is simply not going to happen. Uh, At least not in the short term. I should never say never, of course. but I think what is much more achievable is a legislated charter of rights. I think it's also consistent with what I think is, is a very Australian um, commitment to parliamentary democracy. As a nation, I think we believe in parliamentary democracy, and I think we should work with that faith and, and belief in parliament. Um, in order to develop the next stage in protecting human rights through legislation. Now, my, my proposal is by no means a new one. It was proposed in 2009 by the Human Rights Consultation led by Father Frank Brennan. Over 80% of the submissions um, to that uh, commission, to that consultation process, supported some form of legislated Australian Human Rights Act. Um, sadly... The Rudd Labour government at that time failed to introduce a charter, balking, I think, at the political hurdles at that time. It may very well be, um, curiously, that leadership comes from the states and territories. Victoria and the AACT have Human Rights Act, and you might be aware that Queensland has just introduced a draft Human Rights Act, and it may be that they pro- provide some form, a tipping point for momentum for a federal, uh, a federal legislative uh, charter. It's true that a legislated charter is not ideal. It could be changed by the next session of parliament or certainly by the next government. But the reality is that no country that's ever introduced a legislated charter of rights has ever repealed it. They may amend it, as you would expect, but no government has ever repealed that charter. Uh, so I think that's, that's uh, of course, a charter, a legislative one, is not as strong as one would want it to be, uh, but nonetheless, I think it would build a foundation for building trust in the Australian community um, and uh, to create trust in what's called the dialogue model. That is, uh, that an individual could ask a court to issue a declaration that a proposed or existing law is not consistent with charter freedoms. The court would not have the power to um, to consider the law vitiated or, or invalid, but it would send it back to Parliament to decide what action to take, thereby ensuring the continued sovereignty of our elected representatives to parliament and I think that fits the model that we feel more comfortable with the courts aren 't making law in that sense um, but uh, but are referring the matter back to Parliament uh, more important really than the courts and the impact on parliament is that if you have the language of human rights uh, as part of our federal laws, it will ensure at the lower levels of government, government departments, administrators, the federal police, Medicare, and Centrelink must consider human rights before they act or change their laws and regulations. In other words, it can be done at a very quiet uh, uh, level Aware questions such as what are the legitimate aims of this law, is it necessary and proportionate, are there other ways, less restrictive ways of human rights to achieve the goal? But let me briefly, if I may, give you uh, a very quick illustration of what I mean. You may be aware uh, that um, a couple of years ago, the Papua New Guinea Supreme Court was asked to consider the validity as a matter of constitutional law in Papua New Guinea of the holding of, at that time, something like 800 men on uh, Manus Island, and the Supreme Court found unanimously that the detention of asylum seekers on Manus was invalid under the Constitution because that Constitution provides that no person shall be deprived of his personal liberty subject to certain express exceptions. The Papua New Guinea Court then ordered the Australian and Papua New Guinea governments to end the detention of those asylum seekers. And the O'Neill government closed those centers in October last year. Now, we know that this was rather a Pyrrhic victory, because the detainees were then transferred to other accommodation, in fact, uh, replicating the detention. But the key point I want to make is that under that modern constitution, Papua New Guinea Supreme Court unanimously found that there was a right to personal liberty. But let's contrast that with the so called M68 case just three months earlier than the Papua New Guinea decision, where the High Court of Australia confirmed the constitutional validity of our offshore processing regime. And this concerned one of many, many cases a Bangladeshi woman, an asylum seeker, intercepted at sea four years earlier, detained on Christmas Island as an unlawful non-citizen under the Migration Act. She was transferred to Nauru, as she must be under the law, uh, and gave birth to a daughter in Brisbane uh, in December 2014. She asked the High Court through her pro bono lawyers, and there's so many of them throughout Australia, in this case the the, um, Human Rights Law Center, um, who represented her in arguing that her forced return to Nauru on the ground of that her detention uh, challenged the forced uh, return on the grounds that her detention was unlawful and unconstitutional. Well, she challenged the particular constitutional validity of, um, of, the, of the law. And as the matter got closer and closer to the High Court hearing, the government lawyers looked closely at the Migration Act and told the minister... In fact, the Migration Act does not allow her removal to Nauru from, uh, from Brisbane. There's nothing in the Migration Act that permits this or authorizes it. So what did the government do? And the government lawyers. They went back and they passed an amendment to the Migration Act, section, and I know it well, section 198 AHA2, which has retrospective effect to cover precisely the period of this woman's time on Christmas Island and Nauru, which gave the legislative authority to deport her to Nauru. Now, the majority of the judges, therefore, rejected her challenge. In other words, they said, although they agreed that the Migration Act unamended at that stage would not have permitted her return, the amendment retrospectively would. Now, there was a single dissentient Justice Gordon, she took, in a crystal clear judgment, and if you've got the time, do go and have a look at it, um, she said that the amending provision was invalid to do what it purported to do, because what it did was to vest a judicial penal power in the executive, contrary to the doctrine of the separation of powers or the independence of the courts that, of course, Dr. H. V. Evert fought so hard for in the the, um, Communist Party case. She said that to send this Bangladeshi woman and her daughter to uh, Nauru, the daughter, of course, for the first time, but for the Bangladeshi refugee, having spent some years there, um, was, had become penal because it was indefinite with no hope of durable settlement. And as you will know, penalties are for the courts not for the executive. They are not for government. That is what the separation of powers is significantly about. And Justice Gordon said, this has now become a penalty. It's become arbitrary. Only the courts can do so. And yet, as you know, none of these asylum seekers has been able to have their day in court to determine the validity uh, of of, of any charge against them. Well, respectfully, I agree with Justice Gordon, but my key point is that you have a modern constitution like that of Papua New Guinea where the court can unanimously decide that there's a right to personal liberty and you have a much older constitution such as ours where we have no protection against arbitrary detention without charge or trial and the court felt uh, that it was unable to find uh, the cons- retrospective, arguably penal provision for arbitrary detention was valid under our constitution. Now... That is what, in just two examples, most concerns me, and that is why I believe it is now time for the courts to have the power, the tools of a federal uh, charter of rights. But I'd like to finish, if I may, on a much more optimistic note because sometimes we get it right in Australia. And um, a few months ago, a single federal court judge here in New South Wales I think, did get it right. It concerned one of many, many cases of a uh, a child, I think a 10-year-old boy, with severe mental uh, and physical uh, illness, as adjudged by the senior medical officer on Nauru. He had been there for many years, uh, and he was in a parlous state. He had attempted uh, suicide and self-harm on a number of occasions, and the senior medical officers were pleading with the now Department of Home Affairs uh, to allow the child to be brought from Nauru to Australia for proper medical treatment along with his mother. Those requests had repeatedly been rejected uh, by the government and through the, through the Minister uh, for Home Affairs, Mr. Dutton, um, repeatedly over that nine-month period. But finally, again, pro bono lawyers brought the matter before the Federal Court of Australia. And a single judge didn't talk about any of the things that concern me. He didn't go to the Convention on the Rights of the Child or the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights or, or even the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or even really spend much time on the technical terms of the Migration Act. What he did was to go back to absolutely basic common law rights. And he said there is an obligation on the Australian government a duty of care to that child for his mental and physical well-being. That we are responsible because we have effective control over the condition of the, that child uh, in, uh, in Nauru. Uh, and he ordered the minister to allow the child and his mother to come to Australia. Going back then to fundamental principles uh, that I think are, 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 are really the lodestar uh, that we should not forget as being so, fun- so important to how our human rights were developed over, over many uh, centuries and decades. But then the federal court judge did something I've never seen a judge do before. He checked the flight schedule. And at the end of the judgment, he said, there is a flight tomorrow morning from Nauru to Australia, and I expect to see that child and his mother on that flight. Now, he got it right, yes, I think he, I won't mention his name because I don't think judges like being referred to too specifically, Um, but I think other judges have also looked at this principle, but what I'm saying is we have the laws, the capacity in the common law, the values that underpin our principle of legality, and I think we need greater courage to stand up for those principles. I think that we've waited far too long for a human rights charter. We need to revisit the recommendations uh, earlier of the Brennan Consultations for a Human Rights Act that reflect the fundamental provisions of the Universal Declaration as an integral part of our democracy, providing a check against executive powers. The Universal Declaration remains a vivid and as relevant today as it was in those post-war years. Let us look again at that declaration and reinvigorate our advocacy to give it legal effect in Australia over 70 years after uh, it was passed uh, in the General Assembly. Let us live up to the vision of Dr. Evert in ensuring that the rule of law prevails over our increasingly arbitrary government. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Uh, today we celebrated the 26th anniversary of Paul Keating's Redfern speech. So it's a very, tomorrow is in fact the, the actual anniversary. We were to celebrate 25 years last year, but um, we lost uh, Mr Bellier last year, so we postponed for sorry business. But um, it is a particularly significant day for the people of Redfern uh, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation for that reason. I want to uh, thank the Ebert Foundation for bringing us all together this evening. Thank you very much, Clara, for your words earlier. Uh, Clara Edwards is the Secretary of the Everett Foundation. We also have the President, Chris Scheel, here this evening. Where are you, Chris? Give us a wave. You can go and, you can go and find uh, Chris later on to have a talk to him. And Bruce Childs, uh, I'd like to acknowledge him as well. Bruce has been the driving force of the Ebert Foundation for many, many years as well. I'd like to thank Elizabeth Evatt, too, for her uh, introductory remarks. If I were to go through all of the firsts uh, that Elizabeth Elizabeth Evatt has to her credit, we'd be here all evening. The first Australian on the UN Human Rights Committee is but one of them, and it is really truly an honour to have you here tonight, Elizabeth. I heard her talking about um, her uncle on the radio during the week, and uh, as one of the callers rang in afterwards and said, imagine the Evatt family, Chris they would have been pretty interesting, wouldn't they? <laughs> um, I think one of the most significant things that we know about Doc evett was that he was the one at the United Nations who was saying that every country must have an equal voice, that the United Nations should not be dominated by the largest countries or the most militarily powerful countries. Uh, and that, um, that, I hope... Uh, was truly an Australian intervention that made such a difference to the United Nations. Um, It has its frustrations, certainly it does, but imagine a United Nations that didn't have an equal voice for every country. So we've heard from two amazing women tonight, and I think... um, On this 70th anniversary of the Declaration of Human Rights, it's important to remember the role that women have played in advancing human rights in this country and internationally. Of course, um, Gillian Triggs pretty much copped it (laughs) from George Brandis right through this period uh, at the Human Rights Commission and from others, Peter Dutton and others. Um, But she was in very good company. You think about Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, role Uh, in the drafting of the declaration, our own Jessie Street, of whom we are so very proud, Uh, women from around the world like uh, Hansa Mehta, who helped also draft the Constitution of India, Minerva Bernardino from the Dominican Republic, Begum Shasta, Ikram Mullah from Pakistan, all played an important role 70 years ago, and we still see... um, Uh, women like Gillian uh, being criticised for standing up for human rights but, as I say, she was in good company. Eleanor Roosevelt was called by the media impudent, presumptuous and conspiratorial. Uh, Her withdrawal from public life at this time would be a fine public service. (laughs) Um, Our own Jesse Street, who played such an important role in uh, the Declaration, was called a dilettante liberal socialist. It was these women 70 years ago that changed the declaration so that instead of opening, all men are brothers, instead the the declaration reads, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And it it makes me think of... um, (coughs) Martin Luther King, the quote that is very famously attributed to him, it was Barack Obama's fav- famous quote, favourite quote of Martin Luther King, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. There sometimes begins to be a feeling of inevitability uh, in, in this progress towards a more just and equal society. And I think um, it's really important on a night like tonight To remember that these things aren't inevitable. We hope that that the arc of human history bends towards justice, but it, it only can bend towards justice if every one of us is working toward that aim. It's not inevitable. What that relies on is people of goodwill working together to make it happen. Tonight, Gillian gave us some challenges. Um, I, I did actually. I was I was sitting there taking notes, and it, it did feel like a very long list of things that we need to get done as a nation. Uh, I'm very proud to have been part of the. Um, Parliament when we made the apology to the stolen generations, when we moved removed 85 pieces of discriminatory law from LGBTIQ Australians. Um, when I was the Minister for Women, we signed on to the optional protocol uh, to the Convention on Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. There, of course, have always been steps forward. But Gillian has pointed out that we have no Charter or Bill of Rights. We continue to fail to implement the treaties, even the treaties that we've ratified, um, signed and ratified, that we pick and choose which international laws we respect and that our institutions uh, by and large lack the power to implement even those international laws that we say that we are party to. Um, She's suggested that a legislated charter of rights is an important next step forward and I think it is something that we need to re-examine. But we're in a debate right now. It gives you an idea of how complex this is. Um, The Ruddock Review was given to the government, I think it was in May this year, and we're having this debate about... Uh, freedom of religion in an environment where the government's not even prepared to share the thinking of the eminent Australians who are asked to examine this issue. And what the debate about religious freedom has become in Australia is a debate between uh, the right to freedom from discrimination on the basis of the practice of your religion versus a right to discriminate against Others, because it is part of your religion to do so, and that that just shows you how very quickly, um, or how very careful we need to be, uh, when we start to talk about um, the the government's next steps in legislating further freedoms. We do have challenges ahead of us. I'd say that some of our priorities, I'd certainly agree with Gillian, um, that violence against women and their children has to be one of our first and most important uh, challenges as a nation. It, It is so devastating that year after year we continue to see the numbers of women and their children who lose their lives in a place they should be safe. Their family home continues to increase. We need to take seriously the Indigenous voice to parliament and the Makarata Commission from the Uluru Statement from the Heart. How can it be that we ask Indigenous Australians, what's important to you? What form of constitutional recognition do you want? Uh, and we get an answer back and the government says, no, nah, not that. We, you've spent a year thinking about it. You've had people from all over Australia come to Uluru to work out what it is that you're asking, but no, nah, not that. Uh, t- anyway. Um, <laughs> we, we do need to, of course, find permanent homes for the people on Manus Island and Nauru. They have been there far too long. And it is extraordinary that on Thursday, uh, the government f- finished Parliament at four thirty on a Thursday, because they didn't want to deal with the the bill that would have allowed sick refugees to be brought to Australia uh, on doctors' suggestions, because they would they'd rather end Parliament early than deal with this piece of legislation. We've got to um, remove discrimination against students, teachers, and staff in schools just because of their sexuality or gender identity. We've got to take action on equal pay. We've got to have a Royal Commission into violence and abuse against people with a disability. We have to have an anti slavery commissioner. The Modern Slavery Act's important, but we need to, as Gillian says, implement. Uh, implement these um, these changes uh, and we need to um, make sure that we uh, offer um, protection uh, from arbitrary government decision making and proper oversight. It's a great pleasure to be challenged tonight, um, Gillian. Thank you very much uh, for your, your thoughts um, tonight, but most particularly thank you for always being um, a, a brave, calm voice of reason and thank you uh, Elizabeth evett for your opening remarks thank you to the evett Foundation and to all of you for showing that it matters that you're here tonight shows that it matters thank you
4: Good evening. I'm Danny Solomire and I'm the University of Sydney's representative on the executive of the Everett Foundation Board. So tonight has brought to fruition the University of Sydney and the Everett Foundation's dreaming and scheming over the last year about how we could vividly uh, honour the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And as our speakers have so poignantly made evident, honouring doesn't mean idolising. It means returning to the kernel of the aspiration, to the envisaged possibility of a world where humans could flourish irrespective of their identity or the accident of their location. Honouring means testing ourselves against this aspiration. And it means committing to it as if for the first time and throwing it out in front of us again as a future worth living for. On behalf of the Everett Foundation and the University of Sydney, I want to deeply thank and acknowledge the women who have graced this stage tonight. Marcia Ella Duncan, Elizabeth Everett, Gillian Triggs and Tanya Plibersek. Thank you.